Hi, this is Jim Brangenberg, the host of the I Work For Him radio show. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast, where we discuss our workplace as our mission field. The live version of our show can be heard each weekday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern on AM 570 and 910 WTBN, locally in the Tampa Bay area, and worldwide on the web at letstalkfaith.com or iHeartRadio. Our website, iWorkForHim.com, has great resources on how you can learn about how your workplace can be your mission field. And also check out the sponsors that bring you the radio show each and every day. And while you're there on I Work For Him, click on the I Work For Him Nation flag and prayerfully consider joining the I Work For Him Nation. Join thousands around the globe praying for their coworkers and employees by name each and every day. That's IWorkForHim.com. I Work, the number four, Him.com. Remember, your workplace is your mission field, and in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Thanks again for listening. I hope this broadcast will make an impact on your life so that you'll never look at your workplace the same again. Let's get to today's show. You've tuned into the fastest one hour in Christian talk radio. Before we get to Randy, just a question and a comment. Have you taken the time to go out to iWorkForHim.com and join the iWorkForHim nation? Have you made that commitment to start praying for your coworkers and employees by name each and every day? Ladies and gentlemen, listen to iWorkForHim today. Stop what you're doing and just listen to these words. When you start to pray for those that you work with, their lives will be transformed before your very eyes because your heart will be impacted first. You will start to see people differently because of how the Lord moves in your heart. He will start to use you in unusual ways because he has been able to have access to your heart to shape it to look more like his. Join the I Work For Him Nation. Be part of thousands across the world praying for their coworkers and employees by name. Why? Because it makes a huge difference. IWorkForHim.com. Click on the I Work For Him Nation flag. And just a reminder, our marriage retreat cruise coming up a little over seven months from now, but the but the cruise lines are booking up next spring's cruises, and we've set aside 20 rooms for our cruise, but they're starting to get taken away by the cruise line. If you have a desire to invest in your marriage, Martha and I challenge you, don't we, Martha? We do. We challenge you to join us next March 30th through April the 3rd to work on your marriage, solidify your marriage, and give yourself an amazing weekend where the focus is you and your husband, you and your wife. That's why they should come? Or is there another reason? That is why they should come. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. Food, you know, good, good. uh, No kids. Entertainment, time together. No cell phone. New friends, more food. No internet. Dinner being made for you. Quiet. Cleared away, no dishes. Blue, sky, we go blue skies and, and blue seas. That's right. You know, the difference between you and I, though, is you challenge them and I'm inviting them. <laughs> <laughs> you will. Your marriage will never be the same if you join us on the Cruise Your Way to a Better Marriage Retreat, sponsored by I Work For Him. Go out to iWorkForHim.com, click on the Events tab. Now, to our guest. Our guest is Dr. Randy Ross. He's written this book along with David Salyers called Remarkable. And Martha and I got a preview copy of this several months ago. And, and I, Martha, you read it first. Or did I read it first? One of us, um, one of us read, read it first. Like, you read it first. I read it first. And Martha goes, oh, wait a minute. I want to read that book. He got, he got ready to set it aside. And I'm like, um, hello. I get to read that too, right? And, and as we read it, we were like, this would make a phenomenal show. So we invited Dr. Randy Ross to join us. And he agreed. Dr. Randy Ross, welcome to I Work For Him. 
No, it's great to be with you this afternoon. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we love to, to talk about the challenging subjects that will help all of us as Christ followers to dig deeper into our faith and be excellent employees in our workplace, whether we're the boss or whether we're the person at the bottom of the totem pole working our way up. They used to say the mailroom, but nobody's got mailrooms anymore. Uh, they would, that'd be like the server room, I suppose. But before <laughs> we get deep into your book, Remarkable, I just, you know, I love seeing how my heavenly father, how our heavenly father works in the intimate details of my life. Can you think of a time recently, Randy, where you have seen him work in the intimate details of your life? Oh, there's no doubt about that. It's kind of interesting you should ask that question because I had lunch yesterday with a good friend of mine that's been a friend for over 40 years, a a friend and a mentor. And we talked for almost two hours over lunch about how God had worked in our lives and how he'd woven our stories together. And and just so obvious that God is concerned about not only the, the, the purpose and the direction, but the details of our lives, even down to the, the what we would call chance or serendipitous encounters, and how God uses every single one of those to weave his story in our story and allow our story to be a part of his story. And so there are just... Uh, countless examples of how he's done what only he can do by orchestrating events and activities that are are masterfully uh, put together in a way that brings him glory and gives us opportunities to participate in the creative process. And what you just described was the tapestry that the Lord is weaving. And we don't we don't necessarily get to see the front picture. We get to see the back of the tapestry a lot in, in our lives. But to know that God is weaving in all of this significant stuff into our lives, stuff that we get to take into eternity. I mean, our relationship with our Heavenly Father is our eternal gift, but all of the people that intersect in that, that we will, again, get to spend eternity with, it's amazing. And it's also amazing, I don't know if you find it, but I I love it when I see that the Lord cares about those small details. Well, you're asking... The fun part is you're asking about what I've seen God do recently, and I can tell you so many examples. But what's even more fun is to see how after 10, 15, 20, 30 years, he brings an experience full circle or a conversation that you started back then or, or an introduction to someone who was a stranger at the time but has now become a friend, and how that has all come full circle to accomplish great things. And, and that's even more fun to me than the immediate gratification of seeing him, him work in my life today, even though I celebrate that as well. But it's seeing that long-term investment and how he so intricately brings everything together to accomplish his purpose. You know, I look forward to our conversation today as we talk about your book, Remarkable, but I love that insight because it is nice to get instant feedback. You know, we, we live in a generation where we're, we're constantly getting instant feedback, but when you can see the Lord use an experience that he brought into our lives 30 years ago and, and see it play into your, like, oh, wow, I understand why I went through that because it totally applies today. That's also awesome, and that's part of that tapestry weaving. You're like, Wow, I never knew that thread was going to really apply to that part of the picture. That's the eyeballs in the picture, or that's the feet. It's amazing. We're talking today with Dr. Randy Ross. He wrote a book along with David Salyers. The book is called Remarkable, and and this book is all about maximizing results through value creation, and that says a lot of stuff, but where do you really hear about the depth of this book? As Martha and I read this book, it's a parable, a leadership parable, but it's so much more than that. Randy, as you wrote this book, Martha said that maybe in your tapestry now is there's an exclamation point. 
Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and for those that haven't seen the cover of the book, it is red with a big white exclamation point in the middle. So as you guys were talking about the tapestry God's putting together, yours is definitely going to have an exclamation point in there. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> So you're a change agent. That's what you really do. You seek to bring about remarkable where the mundane is present. How did God, how did you recognize that God had laid that passion on your heart, Randy? Well, let's start just by talking about what remarkable really means. Uh, Remarkable means that you engage in life, every encounter, every endeavor, to do it in such a way that it exceeds expectations that it blows people away, delivers a wow experience regardless of the service or or product that you provide. And you do it with such flair, with such enthusiasm, that when people leave your presence, they have an irrepressible desire to talk about you. And when other people are talking about you, then you indeed have become remarkable. Um, We know from Scripture, it says, let your light shine before men that they'll see your good deeds and do what? They will remark about you to their Heavenly Father. They will talk about you. And that's what we really want to do. We want to help people get to a place in their lives and in their careers that they don't get caught in the morass of mediocrity, but that they truly do pursue with passion God's very best for their lives. And the reason we created um, this message, the reason we wanted to promote it through a book, is because we look across the landscape of the American workforce and we see so many disillusioned, disenchanted individuals who really possess very little passion for what they do. Um, As a matter of fact, we know from research through the Gallup organization that only 30% of the American workforce is actively engaged in their work, meaning that there's emotional connectivity to their work. So another way to say that is on any given day in our country, only three out of ten people wake up and say, God, it's going to be a great day. I can't wait to get to work. The other 7 out of 10 people wake up in the morning and go, good God, it's another day, and I hate to go to work. And we want to change that, because work is a gift from God, just like life is a gift from God, and it's a calling. And we should pursue that with purpose and passion. Well, and you say that, and it's so true. And really, we have been talking about that for three and a half years on the radio, that God has given work to us as a gift. But it's a training process because most people have not been brought up recognizing that their work is actually their mission, that it is their calling, what they've been equipped to do. But you you keep it so simple to say that it is. You know, your work is remarkable when it exceeds expectations. And we talk all about people who join the I Work For Him Nation, that one of the points is that they're, they are they pro- proclaim and demonstrate excellence in what they do. Absolutely. I mean, the sad reality of it is this, that a lot of people in, enter the workforce with this idea that they want to um, get the best job that they possibly can to make as much money as they possibly can so that they can retire as soon as they can. Mm -hmm. And it's all about value extraction. It's how can I attach myself to an organization to milk as much from that organization as I possibly can so that I can quit as early as I can so then I can enjoy the rest of my life. That's really sad. What if you were able to leverage your passion and your strengths and you were to align your values with the values of an organization, a cause that you really believed in, and you were more intent on creating value than you were extracting value, and you actually found an endeavor from which you would never, ever, ever want to retire. See, we think that would be remarkable. Oh, yeah. Well, and we have talked literally three shows this week. We've talked about values and we, we from different perspectives, but 
we've talked so much about the fact that you know you have to understand your own personal core values before you can understand whether your core values are in alignment with the core values of the business that you work with or if they're in direct conflict and if they're in direct conflict then you do need to find another place to go because it's going to be constantly miserable for you but if they're not in direct conflict how you are probably in exactly that place to do exactly what the lord has called you to do and to do it with excellence and to recognize this passion because we can feel the Lord's passion when we're working. But yet it is our society today treats work. Well, it's joked about like it's some sort of a plague, like it is part of original sin instead of the fact that God assigned work long before original sin. Right. No, well, no doubt about it. I, I kind of jokingly sometimes share this when I speak in front of an audience that by the age of five, I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. I mean, adults would come up to me from time to time and ask the question, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when they would ask me, my eyes would light up, and my heart would race, and it would skip a beat, because I knew at the age of five clearly what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. You know, other kids wanted to be a doctor or a fireman, or, or some wanted to be the president. And in, in my generation, astronaut was a big thing. But for me, I knew at the age of five, when I grew up, I wanted to be Batman. I mean, clearly, I wanted to be Batman. I wanted to right the wrongs in the world. I wanted to fight evil. I wanted to do good. I wanted to be a change agent that would turn the world upside down. And I can honestly say today, I've got the same passion doing what I'm doing now as I did when I was five years old. But when I, when I ask people in the marketplace, hey, what do you do? I can just tell you, Jim and, and Martha, there are very few people's eyes light up. And their heart doesn't race and skip a beat. And they almost are apologetic when they try to tell me what they do. And for me, that's sad. Mm -hmm. You ask the question why we wrote the book. We, we want to infuse life-transforming principles uh, back into the marketplace so that people can be reinvigorated by this idea of, I'm not just here with a purpose. I'm not just here with a mission. I'm on mission. And I want to find an organization where my values align with theirs, and that's what we call in our world value centricity, mm -hmm. because when you create that, then you create this energizing circuit through which energy can flow to do good and, and light up the world, and, and that's what we want to help people find. But I think it's important to, to ask this question. You get brought into organizations all the time to help them evaluate their remarkableness, the, the, whether, they, whether they are a value-centric Centric. Well, I can't even value centric. That's good. Nope. Value, value centric. Thank you. Sorry. I don't know why my lips all of a sudden left my left the building. Uh, whether they're value centric or not, how when you're brought into an organization, how can you tell if it's a remarkable organization or not? Oh, it, it's actually pretty easy. While while we do have some extensive assessment tools that we can use, you can sense when you walk into an organization what the energy level is. Are people excited about being there? Is there a high level of creativity and, and collegiality? Is there co collaboration, or instead is there more competition where there's turf protection and silos and, and people just uh, protecting their own territory? You can sense those kinds of dynamics, and as you begin to ask questions, you can unearth pretty quickly whether people are passionate about their job or whether this is just going through the motions. And, and we talk to leaders all the time about the need to be intentional about crafting a compelling culture. Because the reality is every time people get together, you're going to have a culture, and that culture is either going to be by default or it's going to be by design. 
either you don't give it a lot of thought and you don't move intentionally toward crafting a better culture, and if you don't intentionally craft it, you will be prone to drift. And one day you may wake up and look around and really not like the culture that you're in because it's nothing more than the ecosystem that you develop as an organization. But if you're intentional about it, you understand some principles and some practices that can move it in a healthier direction, then that's what we want to help people grow to understand and be able to put into practice. Crafting a compelling culture. And, and, and there's a lot of leaders, managers, supervisors that are listening today thinking, wait a minute, but that sounds really intentional and difficult. And yet, you know, you portray in this, I pulled away from this story, maybe not all of the points that you would have loved me to pull away, but what I loved most was that you you masked mentoring by, I mean, discipleship as mentoring. Between, between Fred and Dusty, uh, what I love most about your story is that you've got the older generation investing in the younger generation. And it's a model that is lost on today's world, where one generation is passing on the knowledge, the the, the skills to the next generation. And it, these guys started over a car conversation, which I could totally understand that. But how... Was that, I mean, that was a message I pulled powerfully out of that. Do you see mentoring still as something as a viable tool in today's business, America's business culture? Oh, I think it's absolutely essential. There's nothing that can substitute for life-on-life experience mm-hmm. and living in community. One of the ways that we say it is that everybody has a desire to grow, but not everybody uh, has the ability to self-activate. We, we want to grow, we desire to grow, but we don't grow outside of the context of community. We have to be engaged in relationships for a number of different reasons, for the encouragement, for the accountability, for the support. But God created us to live in community. And so we talk about this whole idea of people grow into the conversations that you create around them. And that can only happen in a mentoring kind of a relationship. And so If you think about it, um, by design, God built us to be engaged in a relationship with him. And it's only when Adam and Eve bought into the lie that they could be as enlightened and become like God on their own outside of the context of a relationship, that's what precipitated the fall. And everything since then that um, is healthy for us as individuals and as Christians, and even as we move into the marketplace and we're talking about productivity and and mentorship, it all happens within the context of a relationship. And so all of the the maxims or the principles of axiology are truly built around how do you more deeply connect with other people? Martha. So one of the things that um, I just love about this book is the fact that it is a parable. It's written in a way that um, is a story. And in that sense, a lot of people, I think, I think can pick up this book and not feel like it. this is a how-to, but yet at the same time, there is the whole, it's written very intentionally with a lot of lessons in there. And I would love for you to tell our readers um, a little bit about how you decided to take that approach and where the storyline might have come from. Well, first, I appreciate your description of the book, Martha, and it was our hope that the storyline would be engaging mm-hmm. and that throughout the storyline we could uh, interject some, some humor and um, maybe some of the lighter side while we we're talking about some rather heavy topics um, and at the same time be able to impart 
these transformational truths, which we call the maxims of value creation, uh, in such a way that people would be able to grasp them and easily apply them. So uh, rather than make it a, a how-to book uh, with maybe a storyline in the back half of the book expounding upon the principles, we just wanted to weave it all together so that it would be an easy and fun read. So who I'm just curious, who did you, you know, model Fred the the mentor in your story, the the, the guy the, the guy that runs the car repair place, who did you model him after? Did you have somebody that was in your life that that was modeled after? You know, that's a that's a great question. And and for me, Fred is sort of an amalgamation of all of the individuals uh, that have contributed to my growth and development. And, and through the years, one of the things I've always sought to do is to find individuals who are further down the road than I am and just uh, engage them, have them be a part of my life, in it, whether that's uh, a single conversation or an ongoing discipleship process where we'd spend time together. And across the years, there have been a number of men that have uh, poured into me and taught me life lessons and, uh, and business principles that then I wanted to try to impart to other people. So he's, he's kind of a composite. But do you have a love for classic cars? <laughs> That's the funny part. I know absolutely nothing about cars. <laughs> and, and I, the reason that I, I mean, I, I appreciate cars, but I am not mechanically inclined. And so I think, again, part of the thing that makes it so effective is that I had to write that on such a simple level that even I could understand it. So whether you're a man who loves classic cars or a woman who hates to change the oil, you'll still be able to understand the principles because they're very clearly and simply explained. Most definitely. So that's about Fred, the mentor. And if people will read the book, they'll they'll get an understanding of where he is at in life and, and how... God is using him where he's at. And then Dusty is the gentleman that needs to learn, let's say. And right. his company is struggling with being very mediocre. And Jim was talking earlier about how you do work with a lot of business owners and you see them in those same kind of situations. Um, just talk to that a little bit and how people can relate to Dusty and yet not be discouraged. Sure. So Dusty is a stereotypical aspiring executive who really wants to do a good job, mm-hmm. but he, he begins to understand that his people are not nearly as engaged as he hoped that they would be. And so he sees his workforce, and if you're in the marketplace and you give leadership to other people, whether it's one person or a team of thousands, um, you can understand and relate to this whole idea that you, you, you want your people to be happy, you want them to be fulfilled in their jobs. Um, but sometimes you discover that they're just not bringing the passion, the energy to the table that you wish that they would. And I would even suggest that the, the greatest resource that any leader has is the latent energy that's present within his people that's yet to be unearthed. And so uh, as Dusty walks through the story, he begins to tap into the passion. Fred teaches him how to tap into the passion that everybody has to create value. In other words, to do something significant that leaves a legacy or leaves a mark on other people's lives. And he begins to understand that the fact or or the best way for him to experience fulfillment by fulfillment to others. It is so cool in the book how 
you know, Fred is you know, somewhat of an artist. He's, he loves writing on the back of the napkin, which is one of those things, you know, a back of the napkin kind of a conversation. Kind of an old thing because, of course, people today send emails and text messages and send pictures and things like that. But Fred has mastered this art of communicating a message on a napkin from, the, you know, the, the right where they're with, right where they're sitting. But one of the first things he teaches Dusty is asking questions. Not poor questions or good questions, but profound questions. Asking profound questions is a lost art. Why is that? Uh, well, um, it, it's interesting. I, I think the greatest tool of any leader is the art of asking questions. Uh, there's, there's something about people bringing their problems to us as leaders and us being able to to give them an answer or solve the problem that makes us feel really good. But what that actually does is it disempowers the person who brings us the issue. If when a challenge arises, if we as leaders can move into that and go, hey, that's a great assessment. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Now, how can we solve that together? And putting the the question out there so that the individual has to wrestle with it and they come to terms with it. Because if I tell someone else what to do, they're taking either responsibility for the process nor being accountable for the outcome. And if it's a poor outcome, they can look back and just say, well, it was your fault. That's what you told me what to do. But I'm not helping them mature and grow to process the information and be able to come to a conclusion, a plan that they can own. But when I ask good questions and I really begin to, to have them think about what the possible solution could be and for them to own the process, then I can celebrate and cheer them on, and they can take pride when things turn out well. And if things don't go so well, there can be accountability there, but I can help them own that as well. So good questions breed ownership, which is really um, the the heart of being able to create value. Well, and, and it is amazing to me how many business owners today fail to ask their people good questions and let them dig deep and struggle with some uh, uncovering those answers. And, and they fail to tap into the well and the wealth of wisdom that their people have. They're paying them all these big salaries, but very often they just treat them as robots instead of as a valuable resource that they are. And, and it's, Martha, as we talk about this book, Remarkable really is a way to give God glory in our in our workplace. I mean, as we talk about excellence and exceeding expectations, where that's what people will make a remark about our behavior. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, who who doesn't desire if you are growing a business, running a business, whether it's your own or one that you've been entrusted with, who doesn't want that to be done in a remarkable way? And um, so giving the the challenges and the encouragement that this book has can just be help to anybody in leadership. You know, Randy, you start off this working with Dusty in the book. He's clearly struggling to be able to evaluate and assess the status of his own company. Like, where were they at and, and why are they struggling? Why is assessment and the assessments that you talk about here in the book, why are they so key to having a successful company? Well, I think assessments can kind of give us a, a look in the mirror to see where we are. Uh, we actually use a number of different assessments as a part of our practice. Um, our sort of elevator speech is if you want remarkable results, you have to do two things well. You have to hire remarkable people, which very few organizations really know how to do. And secondly, you have to craft a remarkable culture. And a remarkable culture is a culture of high engagement. It's a, a compelling culture where people have this 
desire to bring the very best of who they are to the table. So we use assessments, one in particular we call the engagement index, that helps get behind just the facade and really begins to measure the emotional health and energy that people bring to the table. And it can be an extremely enlightening way to try to evaluate where an organization stands. And really that sums up what you're trying to talk about is value centricity. It's such a big word. And I want us to dig deep into that because the whole book is, is a, creating a value centric world in your work so that everybody in the organization understands what values you are and you all decisions, all processes, procedures, all are, are surrounded by or executed through the values that the company stands for a value centric or right. you call it value centricity. I mean, it's one of those, did you make that word up or was that word out there before you wrote this book? That's the good thing about working with uh, with David. David is the vice president of marketing for Chick Fil A, and the beauty of working with someone in marketing is if you if you have a concept you want to communicate, and there's not a word out there to describe it, you just make one up. So we, we made that one up. So don't don't try to look up value centricity in your Webster. Well, not yet, <laughs> but not. someday it might be there. There you go. All right. So what? Let's just talk about value centricity. What is this concept? You talk about this within the alignment section of the book. It's a big word, but it's powerful. What is it, and how does it impact the business? Well, it's so critical, and I'm glad you asked because alignment of values is much like aligning your car. If your car is out of alignment, you're not going to get great gas mileage. Your tires are going to wear out. You just get that road wear, and the same thing happens organizationally. Value centricity is when my values align with the values of the organization. And what happens is you create this circuit through which energy can flow. But it's very important that we define values because uh, we often think about ethical values when we talk about values or we talk about overarching values. And most organizations have been through a vision, value, purpose sort of a, a exercise. And so you may see their values hanging on a plaque in the lobby. But it's interesting because all of those are rather what I would call commonplace or generic when you talk about good customer service or excellence. or I mean, I've yet to sit down with an executive and say, do you really believe in your values? And then look back across the table and go, well, you know that one on excellence? I'm really not into that. <laughs> I mean, it's like everybody's going to adopt those values that you put on the plaque in the lobby. Nobody's going to disagree with that. But those are what we call hygienic those are the ones that you have to have just to play the game. But there's a difference between ethical values and functional values. And this is where the book really becomes helpful because it helps people think through, okay, well, I've got my, I've got my ethical values down, but now what about those functional values? And where that becomes critical is when you talk about functional values, if your values are aligned with an organization, then it's easy for you to get excited and passionate about what you do. You kind of operate in a zone. Mm -hmm. But stress is the result of operating outside of your value construct. And values conflict all the time. And it's not a matter of necessarily being ethical, but sometimes organizations place a higher value on certain functional values than they do on other functional values. And if that doesn't align with me, that can create all kinds of turmoil, not only internally, but within the teams. Oh, okay, but so, i, I, I got to have you step back for a second. Okay, and I'm not trying to be rude. I apologize. But a lot of people are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But I've got an existing organization, and like you said, we've got our values on the wall 
but I don't really think those are our values. How do you help an organization? How does your organization create remarkable.com? How do you help them figure out what their values really are within the organization? So then you can bring the people through the alignment process. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a two-step process. First, you got to figure out what they really stand for. Well, it is, it is a multi-step process, and it's not as easy as it may seem. But what you do have to do is you have to not only identify those values that everybody embraces, in other words, I say, well, we agree with that, but you have to find those that they embody. And that gets back to the whole mentorship concept. You know, you have to be able to live on purpose before you lead on purpose. And so you have to be able to identify what truly are our values, not just aspirational values, but what are the transformational values that make us who we are? Who are we? And what is the brand that we want to communicate? And frankly, how do we want to do that? Because when you're living on purpose, there are those three elements. It's not just what you do. But it's the why you do it, which touches on your values. And then that produces the how, which is the passion that you bring to the table. And so all of that has to be taken into consideration. And that's why you have to spend enough time thinking that through and articulating it clearly to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And that takes time and patience. I mean, it's one. It's, if you're starting an organization from scratch, you can eliminate a lot of that at the beginning and make sure you're hiring people that are aligned already so you don't have to realign people. But that's a process that I imagine you have a lot of fun with at, at your within your own organization, helping companies find out, where, you know, what are they? I, I love this line that you just said. We need to first live on purpose before we can lead on purpose. First, got to figure out what, what, what are your values? That's pretty cool. Absolutely. So in the book, you you dig deep into this and this alignment. Why is alignment of values, value centricity so key in an organization? I mean, just talk bottom line impact. If uh, we're talking profit, bottom line, money, bottom line. Why is value centricity so key to making money? Well, let me see if I can put it this way. Uh, We talk all the time about the fact that the purpose of business is not just to make a dollar, but it's to make a difference. And if you make a difference in people's lives, you will make a dollar. But you can't get the cart before the horse. And so the reason that value centricity is so important is because we've labored under this mistaken notion that we can motivate people through money. And if you read other books like Drive by Daniel Pink and you understand uh, recent research, you know that if if an organization pays a fair wage, in other words, they pay... Uh, within 10% of what other companies pay for a similar role and responsibility, then then monetary remuneration really becomes less and less of a motivational factor. What we really see is that people are driven by a desire for autonomy, a self-mastery, and purpose. Or let me put it to you very simply. It's like this. I go in and I ask executives all the time, how do you motivate your people? And they say, well, through praise and recognition, through, through, through pay. And, and the challenge with that is pretty simple, that a paycheck is like a battery. It will only energize a device until it loses its charge. Hmm. Well, in the case of a, a battery, that may last a, a week or a month. But in the case of individuals, that paycheck is the battery that powers them. And that only lasts for a week or two weeks, depending upon your pay cycle, and it's gone. What you'd rather do, rather than use a battery, is plug people into a wall outlet that has an endless supply of electricity, and that's value centricity. In other words, why do people volunteer their time in philanthropic work? Why do they volunteer 
to, to give their time and energy in a church or some sort of a, a community activity. Uh, it's what we call volunteerism. They're not motivated by pay. They're motivated by values. Their values align with the cause of an organization, and they freely give their discretionary time and energy and oftentimes their resources to fuel that cause. When we in corporate America can figure out that it's not pay that motivates people, but it's passion and purpose, then we're really on to something. Well, and, and it's so true, but we're running out of time, so i got to move past that. We, might, we could probably do a whole show just on that, mm-hmm. I imagine. Or they could read the book. Or they, then... well, they can read the book. <laughs> and, and they can get a copy. Where can they get a copy? Where, you know, your website, createremarkable.com, is that where you want me to be sending people to? That's great. CreateRemarkable.com or RemarkableMovement.com. Mm-hmm. But you can get access to the book on Amazon or any of your local bookstores, wherever mm-hmm. fine books are sold. CreateRemarkable.com. All right. The third section of the book is called the, the Adjustment Phase. And this is something that business leaders really struggle with. Actually, I think we all really struggle with this. Because once we've made some determinations and we start test driving the determinations we make, sometimes you need to make some adjustments. And you call it in your book the superior choice. Talk to me about that. Well, the superior choice is really a question, and that's just in this situation, what will create the most value? And that means the most value for everyone involved. Because what we really want to do is we want to come to a conclusion that's going to benefit everybody. And if we all bring to the table more than we take away, then at the end of the day, there'll be a surplus that can be shared by those who help to create that value. And that's the very first principle of of value creation is the concept and the idea that we were all designed and wired to create value. And so as we create value, then we leave a positive wake in the world, and that wake comes back to us in the sense that if you want to be successful, make other people successful. Mm-hmm. If you want fulfillment in life, bring fulfillment and happiness to others. And the way you do that is to solve the biggest problem you can possibly find. That's the fastest and best way to create value. So don't, don't shy away from problems. Run into problems with this idea that you'll apply your strengths and leverage your passion to solve problems. Yet a lot of leaders, after they've set all this stuff in motion, have a hard time asking that question. They have a hard time adjusting their plan when it appears not to be moving in the direction that they thought it would move. Why is it you think so many leaders hate to make adjustments? What, 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 is it like an attack on their ego? Or what do you, what do you think? Why, are they, why do they struggle here in the adjustment phase? Well, there are a couple of different reasons. I think they struggle in the adjustment phase because sometimes they experience resistance, uh, internal resistance. And that's always a factor that you have to contend with because people resist change. But I think also it's a good concept that sometimes is misapplied when we say you have to start with the end in mind. Yes, you have to have a direction. Yes, you have to have a long-term play. But sometimes what we envision as to our destination three, five years from now may not at all be the place where we wind up because through God's divine orchestration in our lives, he may bring us to a juncture and he desires to take us down a totally different path. Martha, you had a question. Well, I do. You have a whole organization that has been built around this idea of Remarkable, and we want to give our listeners an opportunity to hear what services you offer and how that all is all-encompassing. Well, thanks, Martha. 
really what we do is we uh, provide an opportunity for companies to think through the intentionality with which they're building their culture. So we provide pre-hire assessments to help them hire the right kinds of people. And then we do a lot of consulting around cultural development and have a wide array of tools that can help create conversations within organizational life that will help and inspire people bring the very best of who they are to the table. That's awesome. So as a part of what you do, is this is your book like homework for everybody that hires you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. You know, if they read the book, and then we have also a handbook called The Roadmap to Remarkable that we have in both the hard copy and also now in a digital format that organizations can use just to inspire deeper conversation. Yeah, I know you're having a lot of fun because it, this is a fun thing. Because if you can turn around... The, an organization and make it value-centric, it impacts in such a positive way the people that are in that organization. It, it, it breathes new life into them when they start to see that what they do actually fits right in with the, where the organization is heading. Absolutely. And, and that's the fun part. When you see the energy level rise and the performance accelerate, then you know you're on to something good. Mm-hmm. You know, as I look at this book, you know, it's an outline of a solution. But it's also an emphasis on mentoring and discipling, a, a relationship with, with somebody that's a wise counselor. Did you write the book with double, with, with double intent, or was the, the uh, example of the discipleship uh, in there as, uh, you're like, well, I never really thought about the fact that people would come out of there going, I need one of those. I mean, what was your, did you think both ways at the same time? Well, we really did. I mean, it was our desire to help people grow, to have passion around their profession. But one of the greatest things that we enjoy is when people come back and go, wow, I bought that book because I thought it was about business, but it's helped my marriage life. It's helped me in, in terms of being a parent. It's helped me grow personally. And again, a lot of that happens through that one-on-one or group community experience where we have an opportunity to, to encourage each other and impart information and life principles that God has taught us and pass those on to other people. Because at our heart, we all, we all have this desire to create value for others and help other people grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really do. Dr. Randy Ross, thank you so much for being on I Work For Him today. Thanks for the great book, but we really appreciate all the insights that you've shared today. It's been a lot of fun. We really appreciate you coming on the air today. Oh, thank you, Jim. Appreciate it, Martha. Thank you. Now, as we come to the end of another I Work For Him show, I want to thank you guys for listening today. I hope you grabbed something. We've talked a lot this week about values and how it impacts an organization, but it's so important. It's got to start with what are your values? As a as an employee within a business or a leader within a business or your owner of the business, it's got to start with who are you? Who did God create you to be? But there are organizations out there like Remarkable, like CreateRemarkable.com that you can use as a resource to help your organization move forward. But it's going to start with a personal assessment. It's going to start with emphasis on who are you and what kind of organization are you trying to run. And and that's what we try to do in our work for him is highlight organizations like this and great books like this to help you along the way. Because as Christ followers, we've got the opportunity to make a huge impact on our workplace by doing excellent work, by being remarkable, as Dr. Randy Ross said. This is part of the process in bringing glory to our Heavenly Father, and we are called to bring excellent organizations into the economy. Be part of that movement. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your hosts, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers, and we own our own business, but ultimately, I I work work for him. him.